1: Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Radiotherapy Triple R's Sunday Morning Breakfast with the Stars. If you can bring yourself to consider three befuddled, poorly caffeinated psychiatrists in their trachea decks as stars. <laughs> we certainly do, but then our delusions of grandeur have been very poorly treated. I'm Dr. Anabolix, and shining in the firmament with me today, we have Dr. S.K., Dr. Peripartum, and the most wondrous Kent, who will actually be taking care of all the important work. So settle back, grab a hot pot of coffee, cuddle your significant other, or both, and let us spin you around the world of medicine, mental health and psychiatry for the next hour. However, do be careful as hot tea, cuddling and spinning can result in tears. Stay with us. Three, triple R. Well, SK, good morning. How are you?
0: Oh, anabolics. There's bright stars and there's stars so dim that only a significantly enhanced Hubble platform would be able to detect the dim pulsations we give off. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm well actually. I went to see the, the Book of Mormon last night. Oh, so I want
1: to see it that so badly. Was it good?
0: Uh, I, I enjoyed it, yes, but uh, I can see why it's generated a lot of uh, negative comment. It's really not complimentary to any religion, really, so at least it is doesn't it, discriminate on that basis. Is, is it
1: just good fun as an audience member? Is it a good fun thing to watch? It's
0: a good fun thing, particularly if you're a fan of South Park because it's very yeah. much South Park humour, but oh. uh, it was a good night out. Fantastic.
1: Oh, I must get some tickets. It well,
0: was certainly a better night than going to the uh, Richmond uh, Western Bulldogs match. Which, oh. Uh, oh, I get that,
1: that was a bad result, wasn't it?
0: It was a bad result for me, Okay. And, All
1: right. All oh, well, right. You, you, try and focus on the Mormons, <laughs> and Dr. Perry Pardon. Welcome back.
2: Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I don't have any news apart from um, well, my catch up.
1: To tell you. Well, okay. Let's let's go straight away into catch up. What okay. what have you got? What have you been reading for us today?
2: Well, I um, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago, that I was into Serial, the podcast that was um, started a little while ago. Now, several years ago, um, talking about Um, a murder in small-town America, uh, reviewing the evidence for and against the conviction of the victim's former boyfriend, Um, Adnan Sayed, for the crime. And this was wildly popular in North America.
1: It was riveting. I heard it. It was
2: amazing, wasn't it? I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, fantastic. um, The whole time. And it had spawned a lot of spin-offs and a lot of uh, net-based discussion on the various merits of different bits of evidence for and against. So... I thought it was amazing and it actually did also lead to a re-examining of the um, original evidence for the trial and uh, another opportunity for the person who was convicted Mm. of the crime to have their case heard again. So I thought that was quite incredible that just a podcast might have that kind of far-reaching effect on the world. Mm. The second series I think was a little bit less successful. It was about Bo Bergdahl who was an American soldier and captured by the Taliban and held in captivity for five years after walking away from his post and um might have been more interesting to an American audience It sort of seemed to center on the technical idea about what is what is desertion and I found that fairly uninteresting and I think probably a lot of other people who weren't American might have also found it uninteresting but they've really bounced back with the third version which is called S-Town oh and S-Town is about a man in small town Alabama in America and it seems as though the idea for it just came from him calling up the producers of cereal who also produced um, This American Life mm. and they've got that sort of discursive uh, sort of um, habit of talking which is um, I think allows them to sort of think about ideas in a little bit more depth and Anyway, he was concerned that there was this murder that had been committed in his small town and because the people who committed the murder were powerful, connected people in the town that, you know, they'd be able to get away with murder. And so this reporter came down and it's it's also, I think, about the sort of the cultural clash between um, northeastern upstate um, New Yorkers and small town Alabama, which is also pretty interesting. Um, but I just thought it was a really beautiful... Uh, story because the podcast itself actually moves away from this suspected murder to examine the man um, on the other end of the phone to talk a little bit more about him, his life, the people who were important to him, the things he was interested in, and um, and how his experience in small town Alabama affected his personality development and um, the trajectory of his life. And I thought. Um, It also moves to talk about the people who are close to him from several different angles, their strengths, their weaknesses. And like... um any good story it, it moves you around the people involved to see them from different perspectives so that people that you initially think are doing a great job and are fabulous you look at them from another direction and they're not so impressive and and the reverse is also true so i thought it was amazing i would strongly recommend it ha,
1: from the i haven't caught up with this last series yet but what, you said that the first one resulted in a new trial has that happened yet the new trial of from- from the guy in series one? I haven't kept a look on it.
2: I don't think it's happened yet, but um, I think they're preparing for the appeal. Oh. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, they do. They, it is a
1: great series to listen to from the point of view if you're interested in the psychology of people and also the sort of the, the developing narrative of of human stories. It really is quite lovely to listen to the way they do it. I must catch up. That sounds fantastic. Oh,
2: it is amazing. I would strongly recommend it
1: fantastic all right well speaking of interesting stories um we're going to come back soon uh we're going to take a little bit of a music break and we're going to come back and we're on the phone we've got maggie groff who's an award-winning novelist and ex-nurse and she's written a book called not your average nurse and uh, we're going to be talking to her and ask her all about her new book stay with us
0: triple r not for everyone for anyone Okay,
1: we've got on the phone Maggie Croft. Now, Maggie is an award-winning, multi, multi-award-winning novelist, columnist and non-fiction writer. She's written a new book called Not Your Average Nurse and it's a, the it's a last in a line of very successful books. And Maggie, are you there on the phone with us? I am. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for being on the show. Look, um, the, the book Not Your Average Nurse has just come out recently, is that right? Yes, it came out uh, 1st of May in Australia and it comes out
3: uh, 17th of May in the United Kingdom.
1: And of course we can all hear that you were born in the UK and you started your nursing career back there, didn't you? Yes, I haven't lost my accent, have I? <laughs> it's a little bit there still. Now, the book is a, largely a memoir, which is different to your usual novels, I understand. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, I wrote the book for my daughter. I'd just handed in a novel... And um, we'd moved, we'd sold our
3: house and we were moving and I thought, you know, now's a good time for me to record my nursing memoir for my daughter. Um, and I did it for two reasons. I um, I didn't know much about my own mother's career uh, and I regret that. And the, uh, the other thing was my daughter has only ever really known me as, a, as an author, as the, the lonely person in the room who at a wall for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I figured she needed to know that I once did something that was quite exciting, so I put pen to paper.
1: Well, the, um, I, the book starts back at your very beginning, before you even start doing your nursing and uh, talks about your uh, life both social and nursing as you're going through uh, training in the UK and it does sound like you led a pretty exciting life actually. You were, you were, am I right in saying you were a bit of a rebel in those days?
3: Um, I think it's safe to say that from day one as a student nurse, I was never going to be the poster girl for British nurses. Um, <laughs> I was in trouble from day one. I, I'd been brought up to, to respect authority, to, but to respect just authority. And unfortunately, back then in 1970, there were a lot of um, loony old women who were retained by hospitals who felt it was their job to humiliate um young nurses and uh, I suffered dreadfully and uh, some of those elderly women have found their way into my novels, I have to say as well.
1: <laughs> yes, I think some of them were also equal opportunity oppressors. As a, as a very young medical student around about the same time, I can tell you uh, there, there weren't many of us who didn't get a little dose of that as, as well. I think.
3: <laughs> Oh, they treated the the, the female medical students, they treated appallingly. I remember that. Uh, There weren't many, I have to say, but um, they suffered probably as much as the young student nurses did.
1: I think that's one of the things that comes across in your novel, how different uh, life is in the medical world uh, now compared to the 70s, particularly when it comes to the role of nursing and the role of women in in the sector. You Uh, you must have seen that change. uh, yeah, i just make
3: clear that um, Not Your Average Nurse is, is non-fiction. It's not a novel. It's it's true. Every word in it is true. Sorry, yep, yep. Um, yeah, and, and there was a great change from 1970 to the mid-70s, really. Um, when I started the focus in the hospital triangle, it was doctors, nurses, patients, and the focus was definitely on the doctors, especially the senior doctors. By about 1973, the focus had changed the patient, And I think with that, nursing became a profession in its own right. Um, also during that time there were new technologies, um, specialized intensive care units opening up, new surgeries, transplants um, and the opportunity to specialize. And I think there was a great parity demonstrated between the professions. Um, How can I explain that? The doctors actually ordered the tests, made the diagnosis, um, ordered the treatment. But the the patient's welfare, the safety, their care, and the constant monitoring of their treatment and condition was the nurse's responsibility. And I think um, women came into their own with that. It gave us the confidence in the workplace to actually make changes and, and promote ourselves. But having said that, we still were very poorly paid and it wasn't really until male nurses were on the scene um, that we were rid of the, the women's work image that surrounded nursing, That the, the words calling and vocation were, were littered around the place. Um, but it was only when men really entered the fray that we got decent working conditions and proper career paths and, and pay started to improve.
1: Well, you actually had to go on strike, didn't you, at one stage?
3: Well, that's right. I mean, um, that was 1974, the Royal College of Nursing actually became a union so that there was safety in that. We'd had no student union at all. Um, and we had marched to Number 10 Downing Street. And uh, where nurses couldn't go on strike, the, the Welsh miners offered to strike on our behalf and did. Um, and uh, we started to get decent, decent pay but in very small amounts, but it, it started to make a difference. Of course, with me, um, when I had my first qualified paycheck as a staff nurse, it, it was hardly anything more than my third year student pay, and and I promptly resigned and went to work as a chambermaid at the Savoy for a month. <laughs>
1: That's right, yes. Yeah. And and you had that was a that was an experience in itself, wasn't it?
3: It was. It was. It was a fantastic experience because I, I happened to be very fortunate and cleaned the room of Bridget doily Cart. Um, and, and struck up rather a sweet friendship with her. And um, at that time, it was the um, opening of one of the Alexander Dumas movies. And uh, there were a lot of famous celebrities there. I had a bit of a run in with Richard Harris. Um, uh, but the book is full of stories of, of things that happened during the different stages of my career. Um, and I think as you've seen from the book, I've worked at many of the world iconic places. And there's interesting stories from all different areas, so stories about not judging people, making mistakes, um, all sorts of different areas and fields of nursing but, um, that I think people find interesting.
1: One, one of the judgment uh, issues you just raised there reminds me of the stories that you had in the very early days when you were looking after the geriatric um, a uh, ward, a general medicine geriatric ward, and all the men at that time were World War Two veterans, very hardened, angry um, men. And you also had a lot of people who were homeless. And you talk about how you had to rechange, you had to change your thinking from a judgmental approach to uh, about you know homo, hobos and what they'd done, and to just uh, you know seeing a different side of humanity and and what had led people to, to get to that place. Well, that was right.
3: That was a fascinating story. It was That was um, One Ear Jones, wasn't it? That's right. And he, um, he, yes, he, he, I didn't realise it. He'd been a GP during the war in London and um, he'd lost his family. Uh, they'd all been killed in a bombing and um, he was homeless and had been found in a back street of Peckham. Um, he'd um, previously lit a cigarette while he was drinking methylated spirits and um, blown his ear off. And he was he was a real man, and I, I didn't want to touch him. I, I was revolted by him. And um, the nurse I was with, I'll never forget her, she was wonderful. Um, she gave me a right talking to about judging people. Um, and I eventually came round to the thinking that, um, yes, he did deserve to be in the hospital, because I was furious that he was in the hospital of his own making, taking someone's bed who probably needed it. And she put me straight, uh, but I still didn't quite get it. I thought that because he'd been a doctor in the war and lost his family, then he deserved to be looked after. But uh, she made it very clear to me that that wasn't the point. The point was that everybody who walked through the doors of the hospital deserved exactly the same treatment, and it was nobody's business to judge them. And I I tell you, I think that that whole ethos at King's of, of not judging people was one of the things that um, came through in that TV show for me, 24 Hours in Emergency, which was filmed originally at King's. Um, that there, there was a very different approach to the doctors, by the doctors and the nurses in the um, emergency, as it's called now, casualty then, um, towards people. But there's no judgment, and, and I think that really comes through in that TV show, and it was something that was. Really pummeled into me from the early
1: days at King's. I wish those uh, thoughts were shared by a lot of other people. We still do see people judging homeless, poor people, don't we? We still, you know, we read about it and we read people's condemnation of people who are addicted to medic, addicted to drugs, and we still, we still need a bit of that from that wise nurse, I think.
3: I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, for about nine years, I was on a, a community services committee. Um uh, that dealt a lot with homelessness, and i can I can tell you honestly, during those those years, I never came across anybody who was homeless because it was their own fault. It was always the result of unfortunate things that could have happened to anybody um, that caused their behaviours and, and I, I think humans have always resorted to um, health harming behaviours when the chips are down. Um, whether we like to admit it or not and I think it's sad that we we still do judge people. I hope I don't do it anymore. Maybe I do sometimes but I hope I don't.
1: One of the things I used to hear often when um, I was much younger uh, I remember working in a few different places in retail and poor people would come into where I worked and I, I must have been half a dozen times with different people i 've heard the I used to hear the thing about um, oh they've they 've actually got a lot don 't feel sorry for them they 've actually got a million dollars in the bank, but you know they 're not that was it, there seems to be a way we want to protect ourselves isn 't it from the, the worst of our our better our better angels uh, I think so i think so um,
3: it 's one thing you know that, that concerns me too with a lot of the promoting of um of, uh, you know, seeking out health uh, care before it's required, in in a sense that promoting having um, tests to make sure you haven't got different diseases, um, really, it concerns me that people probably don't take it up because we still have the culture of blame. Um, It's your fault you're sick because you're overweight. It's your fault you're this, that, and the other because you've you've done life-harming things in the past. And and that concerns me that we haven't kind of um, sorted that one out yet. We're promoting um, health prevention measures, but we're not actually stopping the blame on the other side. And I think that needs to be quelled a bit.
2: Maggie, uh, pro partum here, just uh, commenting on uh, your views on, you know, uh, which I completely agree with, you know, the, the fact that no one can really be blamed for ill health and there's so many causative factors that lead to it. Um, in the context of the American discussion at the moment about, uh, you know, uh, universal healthcare provision and um, insurers being able to opt out of pre-existing conditions that people have. And uh, there was actually a, an American senator the other day who said, well, people who lead good lives shouldn't have to pay f- and subsidise uh, people who don't lead good lives. And that implication that uh, that there's a virtuous way to live that will keep you safe from getting sick, I think, is a really dangerous idea. It's still very much alive today, I think.
3: I absolutely agree with you. I think, um, I think the, the American health situation is, is a very sad, sad indictment on what's one of the leading countries in the world, that they don't have free health care for everybody. Uh, regardless of of your finances or income, I mean, I didn't know when I trained in England under the National Health Service that the rest of the world didn't have that system where where nobody was denied the best healthcare because of their financial background. But um, I think it, it, it's very frightening. Uh, well, I, I have two a niece and a nephew who, who are both doctors in the United States, and and they will both support me in saying that. Um, The judgment is still there, and it's wrong. You shouldn't judge people and put them on a list, basically, um, because of of what's happened to them. And and I think in the States, a lot of those judgments are made by insurance companies, not by the, the doctors that are looking after the patients.
0: Maggie, uh, Dr. SK here, uh, you said at the start of the segment that uh, it became fairly obvious in your nursing career that you weren't going to be a poster child for the nursing profession. <laughs> Something seems to have changed because you're you now uh, uh, quite articulately advocating for patients and for nursing as a profession. Was there a time in your career perhaps where you made the switch from rebel to a more orthodox voice in favour of nursing?
3: I don't know. I think, um, I think nursing, actually, the legacy, one of the legacies of nursing, um, apart from the fabulous lifelong friends, is that you, you learn humility in those first three years none of which I'm demonstrating now Um, and you learn a respect for humanity uh, and that everyone's only a trip away from an absolute catastrophe Um, and I think for me there was a major change when I was about to take my finals Um, I was a Bolshe girl Um, uh, I'm sure that everybody was absolutely startled that I'd got to the final point um, of taking my finals. But my mother became very ill. She was diagnosed on my 21st birthday with carcinoma And we were told that she had three months to live. So I abandoned nursing um, and uh, went home to look after my mother. Now, during the time that she actually died, which was about three months, I, took, I did take my finals. Um, Mainly because I had wonderful friends and the support of um, a marvellous sister in charge of the nurse education at King's, Sister Caroline. And they supported me through my my final hospital exams, my state finals and my obstetric exams. And I I honestly have no recollection of taking them. But I think I grew up during those three months of looking after my mother and the three or four months afterwards, when I had to go back to the hospital to make up the time, because they wouldn't—I did pass my finals um, and my other—but they wouldn't give me the certificates till I'd made up the time. And I think during that time, I—I I grew up a lot. Um, I did second and third jobs to to keep the wolf from the door, and was looking after my father who who lost it um, completely and. Um, Uh, It was a a very focused time on me changing, and after that I realized that I needed to uh, spread my wings, go through the door that opened for me, and um, I could basically do anything. I I think that was it. I'd kind of been brought up to um, allow that failure was always an option, as long as you tried. Um, And that's what I've been doing and I realized that um, failure was a great option and and, um, I took it upon myself to educate myself in many different things, many different areas and I wanted to learn as many different types of nursing and I think I did and I did that all over the world basically in many different places. It was great fun I have
1: to say. Well, these experiences uh, teach us resilience apart from anything else, don't they, and, and um, prove to us that we can do a lot of things. But when I hear people say, you know, talking about lifters and leaners and people who aren't pulling their weight and people who are, you know, are drug addicts, and I often I often suggest to them that they just better make those comments somewhere quietly where the gods aren't listening. Because um, I've heard a lot of people move from that position very suddenly with a with a life incident that Took them by surprise and changed their views and had them with their tail between their legs <laughs> very soon. Look, Maggie, that's a—it's a great book. Not your average nurse is the name of the book. Um, we've hardly touched on any of the the fascinating anecdotes that are in it, but you've—I uh, think you've probably inspired a lot of people to get to, to get it and have a look at it and read about your adventures, which go from the UK to Australia. You're in the Sydney Opera House nurse for God's sake for a while. <laughs> it's a fascinating. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a great book and um, it's lovely to hear a nursing voice on the on on the on the show we don't hear enough nursing voices on the show and um i hope people will have a look at your book and and enjoy it so thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to us today thank you very much for having me i've enjoyed it thank you well we'll, that was maggie uh, maggie groff and we'll put her some information on the on the on the facebook page today about that book you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia and now, uh, this, well, to change the tone a bit here because mm-hmm. um, Dr. Perry Parton came in this morning with steam coming out her ears <laughs> and uh, you've been you've been reading
2: The Guardian this morning and there was an article there that uh, had you hot under the collar. Yeah, so it made me cross. So I'm going to complain about it. I thought that today I would have a nice gentle discussion firstly about S-Town and then about psilocybin and I had, you know, read a little bit about both of those and I was all ready and then I woke up this morning and there's an article on The Guardian website which is titled... <laughs> I don't know where I am without. I don't know who I am without it. The truth about long-term antidepressant use, and it was published there on the sixth of May. And I'm oh, it makes me cross. So I, I, I just, just so that I can fair warn the people who are listening, there'll be about three minutes of me just ranting. And if you want to turn down the radio, then you should, you should (laughs) feel entitled to do so. Oh, we love Um, a good rant. That's all right. (laughs) I'm going to try and talk about psilocybin. Very briefly, I'm going to have to talk about what I think to be an unbelievably irresponsible article and my disappointment in The Guardian um, because you regularly see anti-psychiatry articles in mainstream press, but very rarely actually in The Guardian. I think they have a fairly nuanced and sensible approach to ideas about psychotherapy and treatment in general of mental health problems. And I think that that probably um, has its genesis in um, as the author who you spoke to just before was talking about the NHS and how um, you know they try very hard to make um, to to provide excellence in healthcare in all different areas to all people and psychiatry is one of those I think we still learn a lot from the um, NICE guidelines that they publish in regard to psychiatry over in England every year And that's really based on understanding the research that exists and then trying to make that research clinically available to patients as widely as possible. And that is exactly what this article seems to mitigate against. So, uh, it's dreadful. It starts off badly and it gets worse. Um, It starts off, Sarah never planned to take antidepressants for 14 years and then talks about the idea, as if it's true, that side effects of antidepressants can include symptoms like constant pain or burning hands and feet, Uh, When, in fact, there are particular antidepressants that are prescribed, in fact, to treat those problems, and it's well established that antidepressants tend to reduce the sensation of pain, not increase it. It goes on to cherry-pick statistics and foregrounds individual patient responses as though they represent large numbers of people, and leaves out any discussion of other issues that people suffer from, which could also have an impact on their state of mind. Feel free to interrupt me at any point because I'm getting angrier and angrier even as I talk about it. I'm quite
0: enjoying seeing you elevate before my eyes, (laughs) reaching for the Valium. Uh,
2: The thing that I find the most egregious in the article is the discussion of the re-evaluation of a a 2001 paper called the 329 study. Uh, And that's where about 270 adolescents taking paroxetine, which is an antidepressant, were shown not to experience a statistically significant benefit in terms of their depressive symptoms, and also that they did experience increased suicidal thinking. Now this reevaluation led to the black box warning um, on treatment of antidepress- with antidepressants for adolescents. And um, there's no mention in the article of the fact that this is the specific group that is studied, Uh, it's implied that peroxetine itself doesn't help anyone at all and is dangerous whereas this has not been proven at all in adults. Um, The thrust of the article seems to be the idea that antidepressants somehow make people dependent on them so that they can't stop taking them and if they get a recurrence of depression or anxiety after stopping them it's somehow because of the drug. Uh, not because they have underlying depression or anxiety, and I, this is an idea that I find particularly pernicious. Sorry, I'll let you speak as well.
0: This is the old antidepressants are addictive argument, and when, when patients tell tell me that, I make two points to them. The first is that I've never seen anybody get a shoddy and hold up a Seven Eleven because they've been unable to obtain antidepressants, so they're not addictive. They don't induce cravings. And second is to induce an analogy to introduce an analogy to asthma. Uh, you know, if if you stop taking your anti-asthma medications and your asthma comes back, does that mean that you're addicted to Ventolin and uh, Atrovent? No, it means you've got asthma. Yes. Yeah.
2: Thank you. I had another analogy in my mind with diabetes, which works just as well, but I like the asthma one particularly because, of course, the other thing about asthma is it's um, life-threatening sometimes if it's untreated. So... As uh, uh, oh.
0: is depression. Well, yes,
2: yes, exactly. So the other idea which I actually had not encountered previously that was uh, um, foregrounded in this article is the idea that once people stop antidepressants that they are permanently altered by their experience on antidepressants and in particular made asexual by the medication. And I would like to say that there is absolutely no evidence for this at all Um, And I think it's really damaging to suggest that something as essential to a person's life experience as their sexual relationships would be permanently harmed by taking a medication that would treat their depression. Um, I I mean, I I would add a couple of caveats to this conversation. One of them is that there is no question that antidepressants are over-prescribed in many countries, including in Australia. Um, The prescription of antidepressants has gone up astronomically over the last 15, 20 years, and that probably means that they're being prescribed for people who they do not benefit... But that doesn't mean that they aren't beneficial for a better selected group of people with moderate to severe depressive and anxiety symptoms. And it also doesn't mean that they're necessarily dangerous.
0: The, the other caveat, of course, is that some antidepressants do have the side effect of decreasing libido, so it can reduce sexual drive and interest whilst you're on them. But that bears no relation to what might happen to libido after you go off them
1: as does depression, can lower deb- libido with many people Indeed. as well. It's a pr- often a primary symptom of, de- of, de- of uh, depression with many people. It's a complex area,
2: that. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, so there was one, one person who said that he hadn't had a relationship for 10 years and the, the article drew a direct correlation between his prescribing of antidepressants many years in the past and his current single status, which I think is really damaging. Um, uh, I don't think that individuals uh, making decisions about whether or not to take antidepressants are aided in that decision-making by this kind of fear-mongering. I think it's really low journalism. And uh, I would also say that there is no question that we need to be careful about uh, drug companies' uh, promotion of different antidepressants or any medication, really, because they are very large companies whose primary objective is to make a profit and that's not always aligned with the interests of the individual patient but I think that there's a distinction between being suspicious of financial motives and being suspicious of science and I'm really worried that in fact this article falls into the second camp
0: So, Where are you going to take this peripatum because you know the, the Guardian prides itself as being a bastion of independent journalism I can see a strongly worded rebuttal piece in your future.
2: <laughs> what if I start becoming one of those people who writes below the line comments <laughs> <laughs> an, an <laughs> Enraged of Baldwin <laughs> if you see our article uh, a little note underneath enraged of borwin you'll know who it's from what what about the argument
1: that one of our roles now in the 21st century uh, we used to be keepers of the information we're not so much keepers of information now the information there's scores of information out there that people can click on any anytime what about if our role is to say look um John, uh, here's what I can tell you what I know about this particular agent and, and your particular condition. What I want to do with you is walk you through the options, walk you through choices. I want you to consider whether you want to go on it. I want you to go slowly, start slowly. I want to see you. I want to review your in, um, your side effects. I want you to tell me if it doesn't suit you and we'll try something else. You are going to be your own trial um person and i'm not going to give you something because i think it's going to work i'm going to give you something because there's some evidence that it may and that you and i are going to work together to find something that you can that we can balance any side effects uh, with any advantage so that you've got to Better quality of life, and you and I are going to do that together. Don't worry about anyone says you and I are going to do that until we find
0: the answer. Why can't we take that approach
2: in the 21st century? I really like that approach. If I had depression, I would come and see you. <laughs> too <laughs> well, late. Too
0: <laughs> there are certain problems with that approach, though. I mean, a lot of people, when they go to a doctor, they go to a doctor because we are seen as having particular expertise. They don't necessarily want to be confronted with a range of options and to select from those options without any input from the doctor. You know, when you go to your mechanic... Uh, you don't. You don't want your mechanic to talk you through the options and tell you what they could do. And you know, you might like to try this. You want an opinion about what's going to get you better. I, and I think there's a balance to yeah, be sure. struck. I wasn't uh,
1: suggesting and doing like a fifty-two pick-up thing with a pack of cards. I was suggesting guidance, more perhaps than than um, an authoritarian. I know this will work, and uh, because it does, it does. Uh, it, we we can be as blinkered. As anybody taking medication who is, you know, maybe um, uh, subject to the placebo effect, we can be blinkered if we think, "Oh, I've got a lot of faith in this medication; I've seen it work." We can be blinkered too. So, I just think it's that that belief system that we have to temper with. It may or may not work for you. It does work for some people, and you know, this is what I would suggest you start with because of symptom A, B, and C but you might notice A, B and C side effects. So I do think, I agree with you, there's there's guidance that's got to be had.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree, we've got to provide the downside to any potential treatment that we might offer, whether that's uh, pharmacological or non-pharmacological based, but at the end of the day, people come to us for help Mm. and uh, we should be guiding them about what we think is the appropriate management for their condition.
1: And the downside of ongoing non-treatment for the condition, inaction, Mm. can be as dangerous in depression as action when it comes to treatment, we know that, so... Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, no, that's fine. I,
2: I've, I've gotten off my chest. I feel much better now. <laughs> Demonstrating the power of therapy as well as medication in the course of a radiotherapy hour.
1: It obviously got you hot on the collar on this morning (coughs) breakfast.
2: I was very cross. Now,
1: did you want to? We had some talk about psilocybin, but I reckon we might have to put that off to our next our next visit because I think otherwise we're going to run out a bit of time for our next segment. Are you okay to? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Do you feel vented and
2: better now? Yeah, I feel much better. I can talk about that. So, um, just as a little bit of an advanced promo for the next time I'm going to be talking, uh, I had a look at. I've been looking at different uh, psychedelic. Drugs and mm. their use in mental health problems over the last little while. I talked about ketamine and depression. I had a chat also about ayahuasca and PTSD and this time I wanted to talk about psilocybin, which is a bit like LSD, and the experience of death anxiety, which mm. um, I think would be... A really interesting discussion, but maybe another day. Wow. Okay. Can
1: you hold that over for us? And it, it's, that deserves a whole segment of itself. <laughs> we're going to come back and hear Dr. SK talk about a recent doco called Madness in the Fast Lane. I'm fascinated to find out what this is all about. See you soon. You are listening to a podcast from Community
2: Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Now, Dr. SK, you saw a fascinating doco recently that you wanted to talk to to us about.
0: Yeah, I just stumbled across this thing. I was watching one of the free-to-air digital channels, uh, maybe started this week or late last week, and it was an old BBC doco from uh, 2010 called Madness in the Fast Lane, and it it deals with the story of two Swedish identical twin sisters and their misadventures in uh, the UK in 2008. Uh, the Ericsson sisters, Sabina and Ursula. Uh, They were about 40 years old at the time that these incidents happened. They were born in 1967 in Sweden. We don't know much about their early upbringing other than they lived with an older brother in fairly deprived uh, circumstances. They separated uh, in their adult lives. Uh, Sabina had been living with her partner and two children in Ireland with no signs of mental illness. Uh, We heard that her sister, Ursula, had emigrated to the United States and had had some psychiatric problems. The problems arose when Ursula came from the US to visit her sister, Sabina, in Ireland and that that visit set in place a a chain of events that were quite bizarre and were reported widely in the media at the time and were also the subject of this uh, documentary. On Ursula's arrival in Ireland to visit her sister, the two almost instantly became inseparable. They redeveloped that very close bond that we know that identical twins that can develop. They disappeared off the radar in Ireland and they took a boat over to Liverpool, which is the the ship connection between the two, and they next surfaced at a Liverpool police station where they both went together to report concerns about the safety of Sabina's children in Ireland. We don't have the details of the actual police report, but they showed up, made a report and then left. To board a coach to London... And the driver of the coach noticed some suspicious behaviour. They were both cl- clutching backpacks to their chests tightly, and they refused to allow these backpacks to be inspected for suspicious contents. And the driver was so concerned by their behaviour that he he kicked them off at a coach stop and wouldn't allow them to reboard the bus. And because this was in 2008 and it's the era of closed circuit television and surveillance cameras, we've got footage of them on this doco of them wandering around the service station where they also attracted the attention of the service station manager who thought that they were acting suspiciously and uh, called the police. Officers arrived to talk to them but sort of left shortly thereafter, having deemed the two of them harmless. There's then a series of closed-circuit television footage which shows them walking along the M6 motorway. There's a median strip between the the two lanes. They then attempted to cross the motorway, causing chaos to the traffic and picked up some minor injuries from being struck glancing blows by cars in the attempt. Uh, The transit patrol and subsequently police officers were called to help. And along with the attending police, just by chance was a television crew who were filming one of these reality uh, television shows called uh, Motorway Cops. So all of these events were captured on sort of high-quality television footage with audio at the time. And you show these two uh, poor women talking to police, then suddenly, without warning, one of the sisters, Ursula ran into the side of an oncoming truck that was travelling at about 56 miles per hour, and this sort of crushed her legs and rendered her immobile. Uh, Police were attending to her, obviously, when suddenly and again without warning, her twin sister did exactly the same thing. She followed her sister into the road and was hit by a VW. She was actually knocked unconscious for several minutes, but then regained consciousness. Paramedics were called, uh, ambulances, and you see television footage of both sisters, despite their injuries, uh, fighting against police and ambulance officers and trying to avoid hospitalisation. You hear Sabina, the less severely injured of the two, shouting such things as, ''They're going to steal your organs.'' And uh, she told a policeman who was restraining her, ''I recognise you. I know you're not real.'' So two very highly distressed and disturbed women uh, called into the back of ambulances. Uh, Ursula went off to hospital and she was in ICU with her leg injuries. Sabina was sedated, taken to hospital for an assessment, but shortly thereafter discharged. And you see on the doco records of her police interview. Uh, She seems quite calm, quite rational, but really quite unconcerned about what seems to have happened. Uh, She was taken before the courts, held overnight by police, found guilty of, you know, unlawful crossing of a motorway and assaulting police or something, sentenced to a night in prison which she'd already served and was discharged to the street, essentially, with her possessions in a plastic bag. This is without a psychiatric evaluation having occurred at the time, by the way. The following morning, after she'd been (coughs) sent home from the police station, Uh, she came across two men who were walking a dog and the men saw her and she seemed lonely, confused, isolated and in need of help. They struck up a conversation with her. She appeared quite friendly. Uh, They gained the idea that she didn't have accommodation and anywhere to stay, so they invited her to one of their homes where, you know, she was offered accommodation for the night She also uh, offered the pair cigarettes and behaved quite bizarrely. You know, when she'd given them a cigarette and they started smoking it, she'd snatched it back out of their mouth out of fear that it was poisoned, for example. She was uh, looking in a paranoid fashion outside the window and seemed to worry that people were watching her. So the men drew from this perhaps the conclusion that she was fleeing from an abusive partner. Uh, They offered her accommodation. The next thing we know... Uh, The man whose home it was staggered from his house the next morning to alert a neighbour. He'd been uh, uh, stabbed with a knife multiple times by Sabina, uh, who fled the scene. The neighbour called police. The man who'd been stabbed subsequently died. Sabina had fled the house with a hammer and was next observed walking along a road, hitting herself repeatedly in the head with a hammer. Uh, A passing motorist observed this, uh, stopped to try and wrest the hammer from her. Sabina produced from her pocket a piece of roof tile and whacked him over the head with it, causing some injuries to him. Uh, Police had been called by the neighbour. Paramedics were pursuing her along the road to try and uh, restrain her as well. At this point, she got onto a motorway overpass and uh, jumped from the motorpass, you know... uh, 15 metres or so onto the roadway below and again sustained on this occasion quite severe injuries. Uh, She was later charged with murder.
1: SK, we were just referring to the risks of untreated illness.
0: Absolutely. And this shows one of the, the dramatic risks of untreated illness. So somebody who was quite floridly unwell but the signs had not been picked despite all of this television footage and CCTV evidence and earlier police reports, you know, several opportunities to intervene. Sabina was charged with murder, but following assessment by a couple of forensic psychiatrists, was convicted instead of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility uh, in 2009. And she remained in a secure psychiatric facility until 2011, at which point she was released. And her current whereabouts are unknown. Ursula, the sister whose legs had been crushed, uh, went back to the US subsequently and uh, became involved in a, quite a conservative religious group into which she was baptised, but she seems to have resumed a normal life. So what's gone on with these two women? Uh, the opinions of the forensic psychiatrist, or at least one of them who evaluated her and her sister, were that they were sh- suffering from a shared psychosis. As it, the French coined a term for this, foliar the madness of two people. And it's said to be a very rare thing, Where one person who actually has a primary psychiatric illness, usually a delusional disorder or schizophrenia, where that person has a very intense or very power related relationship to a partner or a second party, the abnormal beliefs infect that previously normal person. So they both come to believe the exact same things. And Ursula, the sister from the US, was felt to be the party who had the primary illness in this case. And upon resuming her contact with her twin sister, infected the sister with the same beliefs. So supposedly a very rare psychiatric condition there was a case that was widely publicized in australia i think in 2016 there was a victorian family, the family yes. called the Trumps, who uh, lived rurally and uh, a man and a woman in their 50s i believe and one of them is felt to have become unwell uh, and influenced various family members to the extent that mr and mrs Trump plus three of their adult children sort of left their rural property and went on what was described as a road trip, but they were actually fleeing imagined persecutors and the parents sort of made the children throw their mobile phones out of the window and so forth during the trip. uh, Various members of the family were subsequently found, apprehended and or treated at various times. But where this shared psychosis uh, spreads beyond two people uh, to, to infect a family. The French again have a term called folie à famille, so uh, madness shared within family members. So this is supposedly very rare. I've probably seen two cases in my practising lifetime. Uh, I saw a mother and a 12-year-old daughter. Uh, the mother had a primary illness and she'd fled interstate in her car, I think, with the daughter fearing that aliens were chasing her or something like that, and the daughter had come to believe it as well. And the second case I saw was an older man with a wife of a non-English speaking background who had come to Australia and was very socially isolated herself and very open to the influence of her husband. Uh, The husband was admitted to hospital and was obviously quite unwell, uh, very paranoid, a lot of bizarre beliefs about the neighbours, for example. Uh, But the wife believed him unquestioningly to the extent that she denied that uh, he had a mental illness at all and actually began legal steps to try and get him discharged from hospital. So again, there's the power imbalance in those two relationships, a mother and a young child plus uh, an older man who had the power and that he was familiar with the language and the culture and a wife who was socially isolated and didn't really speak very good English at all. But I'm just wondering in view of the apparent rarity of this condition uh, whether either anabolics or peripatum in your roles have seen this case as well.
1: I, s- I certainly have and I, it's not just uh, paranoid delusions. I've seen it with uh, somatic delusions as well. I can think of, a, of two separate cases where uh, belief uh, by one person in a family and in both cases in, in my experience they were two mothers who believed that they and their children were infested with Uh, Creatures of some kind crawling amongst their skin, in their blood vessels, uh, in their (coughs) hair, and that no one could see them. Uh, I I remember a mother coming into A&E many years ago. It still breaks my heart to think about it. With two children in tow, screaming at everybody who couldn't see what she could see and couldn't feel what she could feel under her skin, and uh, just fighting off everybody, demanding a different treatment, demanding you know, and scrubbing the children's hands. You know, the children were screaming saying, take it out, take it out of me. You know, it was, i have never forget it in my life. And she was incredibly unwell. And so she that had, was
0: uh, delusional parasitosis or exactly. ICBOM syndrome? Exactly. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And and the children came to believe it as well. They felt that they so were infested this also. This was mum.
1: This was mum. Wow. And um, the other place that I have seen, and I think you sometimes hear it uh, in, in, in the in the domestic violence sphere, sphere sometimes you see people who are um, separating with kids and who are taking people away because they fear something's happening with the other partner. Now, sometimes something is... Is, but occasionally, and I have seen this, where people have had delusional beliefs about the partner, and have have really, um, you know, affected other family members and uh, and other people get caught up into that, and can be it, that can be really disastrous. But um, yeah, it's it's it happens. And it, what do you think it speaks to about human psychology?
0: Well, look. Uh I suppose, in an oblique way, it gets into the whole fake news argument, doesn't it? If uh, something is repeated often enough by an apparently authoritative source, we we come to believe it. And you know in many ways in many ways we want uh, the comfort of being able to believe what people who are important in our life tell us, particularly if it's a child. And- A child parent dyad where there's obviously a dependency relationship so we want to believe and we are easily influenced the treatment for this condition by the way Mm -hmm. is you know you treat the person who's got the primary psychotic belief with antipsychotics and other treatments and uh, the treatment for the the passively infected partner if you like is you you remove them from the influence of the primary sufferer and uh, once they can be placed in an environment where they can be reoriented to reality, uh, removed from the influence of that person, the abnormal beliefs resolve. That unfortunately didn't seem to happen with any rapidity in uh, the case of Sabina Erickson. But, you know, to me, this documentary is frightening from a number of levels, and I think you hit it on the head earlier, uh, Anabolics, when you mentioned... uh, the missed opportunities for evaluation and treatment that, had they been taken in this case, uh, may well have saved uh, a poor man's life who subsequently died.
1: And it's the awful dilemma. Until something bad happens, it hasn't happened yet. So at what point, when you see someone who's really unwell and you're not sure they're posing a risk, you're not 100% sure, and they're saying they're perfectly safe, at what point do you step in and say, you know, I've got a gut feeling, I think I need to get this woman in treatment, when, you know, we know that sometimes bad things happen and that person might go on, as she did in this case, to stab somebody. Then with the retrospective 2020 vision, it all looks perfectly clear. Why couldn't you see it? But, you know, when you're confronted with things on the front row, it's very hard until something's oh. happened, it's happened, and you're just
0: Look, that I'd, dilemma
1: I'd, is there often for us, I'd isn't I'd
0: it? I disagree in this case. I mean, I take your point it in looks the...
1: like we've finished the show now, so uh, it's
0: really yeah. <laughs> You know, the first couple of opportunities, perhaps, where they were kicked off the bus and where the cops came oh, sure. to talk to them, you know, that was low-grade stuff. They might have been come across as a bit odd, but there were no obvious risks. Mm. But I think by the time you've got television footage of of running into trucks on a motorway and uh, making Mm. accusations that the police are imposters and are going to steal your organs, at the very least, I think you get a psychiatric evaluation of that person before turning them loose. That's
1: without doubt. Of course, you should have had an evaluation. But I I guess I'm making the point that sometimes even with an evaluation, it can be hard to to do that and to know when to step in. I'm going to get myself that video. That sounds fascinating. It's well Mm.
0: worth trying to track down. I'm sure it must Mm. be available on iView or similar, but Madness in the Fast Lane is the name of the docker. All
1: right. Well, we've had... Not madness in the studio. We've had fascinating discussions in the studio today, and uh, thank you so much for listening to our show this morning. Um, we hope you've, we've uh, imparted a, a, a wee bit of knowledge there somewhere, and uh, and I say a wee bit, knowing that McZiff is back next week, next next uh, in, in, a, in a month's time with our team when he's back from overseas. So thank you, SK. Thank you, Dr. Perry Pardham and thank you, Kent. Uh, stay tuned. You're about to be uh, further educated by the magnificent uh, Einstein crew who's over there. Wait. To go, and uh, we'll see you. Triple R Therapy will be back next week. Bye bye, thanks for joining us.
0: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.